0: Well, again, we are in a series on the gospel, and we're talking about three things primarily during this time uh, that give us a clear picture of why the gospel is good news. We talked about sin last week. This week we're talking about the cross. And next week we're going to focus on repentance. And uh, I hope you got a note sheet as you came through the doors. I want to encourage you to pull that out and to follow along with us today. Last week we talked about sin, and I want to make it very clear that Sin is, first and foremost, disobedience to God. I said this last week, but you need to hear it again. Maybe you need to fill it in again. Sin is not opposition to a rule. It is opposition to God himself. We we talked last week about why we sin. and We said it's it's in our nature, right? The, The sinful nature that we inherited from Adam and Eve. It was through Adam and Eve that sin entered the world. And it became their gift to us, right? What a gift that is, right? They gave us the punishment for disobeying God's will. And so we talked last week about how the sin nature includes three things primarily. It is unbelief and pride and disobedience. And so we counter the sin nature in our lives by living by the Spirit of God, by living lives of faith and humility and obedience to the Word of God. The Word of God makes it clear that everyone has sinned all fallen short of the glory of God, and that each person is responsible for his or her sin, that apart from God's intervention in our lives, the results of sin are both physical and spiritual death. We talked last week about how mankind is incapable of being made right with God on his own. We desperately need a Savior. Now, in this life, I want to tell you there are two things that are certain, death and taxes. No, two other things that are certain is this, that each one of us will fall into sin's temptation, and each one of us will be sinned against by others. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus invites us into forgiveness and repentance because of the work of the cross. Today, you should have received a little cross as you came through the door. Everyone get one. just a little gift to you. These crosses are pretty unique because each one of them is carved from a a single piece of olive wood that's pruned from the olive trees around Bethlehem, right, the birthplace of of Jesus. right. And so Christians have been carving these crosses for hundreds of years. I want you to take this cross and I want you to place it somewhere you're going to see it. Maybe you need to put it on the dashboard of your car. Uh, Maybe you want to carry it around in your Bible or keep it in your pocket but my hope is that it would cause you to pray, to seek the Lord, and to remember the words of this message, the importance of the cross. As we look at the cross of Christ today, we recognize it is the means of atonement for us. And atonement is really the heart of the gospel. Yes, we are born sinful, but through atonement we are made pure, we're made blameless. And so what is atonement? I think the best way to understand that word is to just pull it apart, right? And, and you could say it this way. It is at-one-ment. Right? So at mint. I know mint is not a word by itself, but you get the idea, right? at one mint. Atonement means this. To, to be or to cause to be at one. It's really about overcoming a serious break between two parties. It signifies an action that is taken to repair an offense or repair an injury. This action allows the two parties to become one once again. And so when we talk about an atonement between God and man, we're referring to God's action that repaired the separation, that repaired the divide that was caused by man's sin. God took it upon himself to, to make a way of atonement through his son. God God's desire was to restore the relationship that was there in the garden, to restore at one man. Now, in order to understand really our need for atonement, the need for the cross, we need to understand who God is and we need to understand, once again, what man has become. So who is God? let say this, he's a God of love. Amen. He's a God of mercy. He's one who would reach across the chasm that was caused by sin. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us, right? He reached across. The chasm. And so, yes, God is a God of love and mercy, but understand this He's also a God of holiness and righteousness. He's a God of holiness and righteousness. And so, His wrath was due to us because of our disobedience. It's what you and I. Deserve And so, yes, he's a God of love and mercy, but he's also a God of holiness and righteousness. But here's what else you need to understand in order to understand the cross. He is also a God of truth and integrity. He's faithful to every single promise in his word. And right there at the very beginning, if you're in Genesis chapter 3, you read that, that mankind sins, Right? But God speaks a promise right away. He spoke to the serpent and said this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Who is that talking about? It's talking about Jesus right there. Right? Foreshadowing the cross. Understand this, that God is faithful to every promise in his word, including this one, the first promise of the Messiah. But who is man? We said it last week. Man is born sinful. Again, the nature of sin is unbelief and pride and disobedience. All have sinned and fall short. The the, the word there, all, in the Greek, you know what it means? It means all, right? Okay. It describes every one of us, right? We've all fallen short. And because of the seriousness of man's sin, he or she cannot make atonement, for himself with his own resources. We are guilty sinners deserving punishment that will one day stand before the judgment seat of a righteous God. You understand these two opposing conditions actually set the stage for the cross. And you have God who's loving and merciful. He, he does not do, desire death for his creation, but at the same time, his holiness and his righteousness simply cannot just tolerate sin. And then you have man who's stuck in sin without the power to change his sinful condition. Man can't keep God's law because he's unable to help himself. His end is death but the cross. Amen. But the cross. The cross is God's divine plan to reconcile the world to himself. God's divine plan to reconcile the world to himself. The cross displays for us the the infinite wisdom of God. The cross is where God's love and his mercy and his holiness and his righteousness all meet. And so the death of Jesus on the cross is the means of our atonement. I love uh, John 1.14 in the message. It says this, the word. Who's that? That's Jesus, right? It says the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I love that. He moved into the neighborhood. But unlike everyone else in the neighborhood, Jesus was without sin. If the nature of sin is unbelief and pride and disobedience, understand, his life was completely opposite of that. He lived a life of complete obedience to the Father so that his death on the cross was the death of one who was holy and righteous and blameless. He did not have any sin of his own to pay for, and so his death was on behalf of our sin. And one of the most amazing things about the cross is that you see it foreshadowed throughout the Old Testament. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said that the cross can be found on every page of the Old Testament. what he meant is that the, the lives of the Old Testament saints and their stories in, in what came to be eventually known as the Old Testament were designed by God to reveal Christ. It wasn't seen by the eyes of those who lived and wrote the Old Testament But those of us on the other side of Calvary, we can look back and we can see the cross revealed through Scripture. Remember, Jesus told the Pharisees that the Scriptures bear witness of him, right? But their deliberate blindness to the truth prevented them from seeing him. On the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, as he walked with the two discouraged disciples, Jesus explained to them the things concerning him. It says, in all the Scriptures. Of course, we understand the reference to the scripture to mean what we call the Old Testament, right? Hebrews 1.1 says that in times past, God spoke to the prophets at many times and in many ways. And one of the ways that he spoke is through what modern students of the Bible call types or foreshadows. I hope you're familiar with these. It's a great way just to see the prophecies of the Old Testament. Okay, so types are really this. They are pictures or object lessons by which God taught his people concerning his grace and saving power. The, the Mosaic system was, was a sort of kindergarten, if you will, in which God's people were trained in divine things, by which also they were led to look for better things that were to come. That's the Old Testament. It's rich in types. Now, an example of a type would be the lamb that was sacrificed, right, and the blood that was placed over the door, of the Israelites' homes on the night of the first Passover, when God struck down the firstborn of the Egyptians and he delivered the children of Israel from slavery. We understand the lamb to be a type of who? Jesus, right? It's a a type of Christ who was sacrificed so that we could be delivered from slavery, right? Slavery to sin. And so this is a type or a, a foreshadowing of Christ. But no place in Scripture... Do we find a more striking type of the cross than in Numbers 21? Would you turn there in your Bibles, Numbers chapter 21? Today I want to take you to a story that may not be very, very familiar to you. It's a story that could seem to have real, no, really no significance to Christ if, if you just read over it quickly. However, Jesus confirmed out of His own mouth that. This was a foreshadowing of his cross when he talked with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. So turn to Numbers chapter 21. As you turn there, let me give you uh, the context for what we're going to read. The story takes place during the time of Israel's wandering in the wilderness. God has been with them. He's provided for them. He's protected them on the journey. In the chapter just before this one, we're told that Miriam, who was Moses' sister, died in Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin. Now, if you study your maps later, you may find Kadesh Barnea in the southernmost part of the region of what we call Israel. You'll see it on the map, and if you look at the wanderings uh, of the children of Israel. Now, going east from there, across the Jordan, is the area referred to in our text as Edom. And so Moses led them south away from the direction they had been taking, and then took a route around Edom, probably to avoid enemies there, which made the journey very tedious. And so here's the setting of our passage: Miriam has died. Moses and Aaron have disobeyed God by striking the rock. Remember that, right? They're told to speak to it, and they, they struck it instead. And God has told them that neither of them would enter the land of promise because of their unbelief. And then Aaron dies on Mount Hor, and Was led there to rest, and then the king of Arad rose up against Israel, and God gave them the victory over him. But probably due to that encounter, Moses figured Canaan wasn't going to be taken from the south, and so he changed his course, and that brings us to where we are in verse four of Numbers chapter twenty-one. It reads, "From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way." And the people spoke out against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that He take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. May God bless the reading of his word today. When we look at the sin of the children of Israel in this passage, have the first of the types that we need to consider today. Let's take it one line at a time. They say, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Now, we understand that the slavery of the children in, of Israel in Egypt was, again, a type of mankind's slavery to sin. We are under slavery, under Satan's whip, if you will, right? And so their deliverance from Egypt becomes a type of of deliverance, of the one who puts his faith in the shed blood of the Lamb of God, who is Jesus Christ, right? Who moves out from slavery into a new life with Christ. And so as we come to consider the actions of this nation of people here in Numbers 21, we have to pause and we have to ask ourselves as believers in the same God who's done so much in our lives, right? He did so much to provide for them and keep them from destruction. What lesson is there for us? What warning is there in their faithlessness, if you will? Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Now, they've asked this question before, right? In Numbers chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, this was the reaction to the report of the spies that Moses had sent into the land. And the encouragement from Joshua and Caleb was, we can certainly take the land, God's promised it to us, right? But the rest of them, they began to complain, there's there's giants in the land, it's going to go back, right? And so they said this, then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness Why is the Lord bringing us to this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Does that sound familiar? Sounds exactly like what they're saying here in Numbers chapter 21. But Understand this, in the face of all that God has done for them. All the times that he had worked miracles among them. All all the things he had said to them through Moses to assure them. They they had this voice in in the desert that was telling them, oh, we should go back to Egypt. To, To return to a place where they were in harsh slavery, treated badly. And at this point, they would not be welcomed back with open arms, right? There would be no homecoming gifts. But the sin is not in wanting to go back. The sin is in why they want to go back. The sin is the sin of unbelief. Hebrews 3.16 says, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with him was he provoked for 40 years. Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see, unable to enter because of what? Unbelief. They were unable to enter into the promised land of God, into the promises of God because of unbelief. I believe this unbelief lies behind every failure in our spiritual walk. Unbelief lies behind every failure in our spiritual walk. However, that unbelief is expressed, whether it's striking the rock when God said only to speak to it, or wanting to go back to Egypt after he had miraculously delivered them, or complaining against the God who who led them, right, and guided them, at the bottom of it all is unbelief. Did you hear what they said in those verses in chapter 14? Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. But how foolish is that, really? You, You don't need a leader to go back, right? You don't need a leader to go back to sin. Like, you've been there before, you you know the way. People don't need a leader to go backwards. They they don't need to be led in order to just sit on their butts and do nothing, right? The only people who need a leader are the ones who are on their feet, and they're looking forward, and they're they're moving forward, and they're, they're wanting to amount to something in the kingdom, and actually get somewhere, right? That's who needs a leader, amen? But believe me when I tell you, going back is unbelievable. Going back is unbelief. Sitting still is unbelief. Refusing to move forward when God says go is unbelief. And doing anything in any way different than what God has said to do is unbelief. And that church is sin. Listen to this line again. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food. Interesting, right? There's no food and water, but we hate the food. Sounds like, home. there's nothing to eat, right? Well, I don't like that, okay? What is this worthless food that they're complaining about? What is it? It's manna, right? It's manna. It's it's bread from heaven. Listen to what Jesus said to the crowd that was looking for him to feed them miraculously in John chapter 6. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Right? We want some of that. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me. And yet you do not believe. God had fed the children of Israel wilderness with miraculous bread, bread coming down out of heaven itself, and they're complaining, we don't like this worthless seed, right? Is it any wonder that God sent the deadly serpents in their midst and won't like, go, go for it, right? And then it was some 1,450 years later that their very descendants rejected the one of whom the manna was a type of, what's his name? What's his name? Jesus. Nine times out of ten, that's the right answer, right? Jesus, right? Church, God the Father sent his precious, sinless son to the world as the bread of life, and those who reject him and those who hate him, they are feeling the sting of sin every day, and they are dying. We don't know whether the serpents that God sent among the Israelites are called fiery, because maybe they were bright-colored, but I tend to think maybe they bite burned a little bit. Right? You get this idea of pain so the people cry out to Moses, the the, the one that they had been rejecting, right? The one they had been accusing of leading them wrong and saying, please, Moses, help us out. We've sinned because we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Now, isn't this strange? Again, weren't they just accusing God and and accusing Moses of of bringing them there to die? And so why are they surprised by the serpents? God's only given you what you want, right? If you want to die, fine, let's go. But I want you to notice that, that they knew what their sin was. They said, we've sinned. They recognized their sin, right? We have sinned because we've spoken against the Lord and against you. At least they had the presence of mind to know that they had first sinned against the Lord. Hear me, whenever we sin in any way, we must understand that whoever else is involved and whatever the hurt we cause to anyone else, we have sinned first and foremost against the Lord. Because he's really the only one whose offense that sin is pure and If you ever find yourself in a position of having to go to another and ask for forgiveness for a wrong that you've done, remember remember this, that you have first of all offended God's holiness, right? To to repent to him, that's necessary, if you will, for true repentance, right? And so we can look and we can criticize the Israelites, we can look down at their ungratefulness and their rejection of God's goodness, but let's be careful to stop and ask if any of their actions and attitudes can be ours as well. Even in recent days, has there been anything that's come out of a place of ingratitude or forgetfulness in our lives to the goodness of God? But this is true repentance. We've sinned against the Lord. That's good. Keep on going. And we've sinned against you, Moses. And in his great mercy, God provides for these sinners once more. And notice here also that the request was that the Lord would remove the serpents from them, right? But does he do that? No, he doesn't remove the serpents because the serpents are a type of sin. Know this, when we become believers in Christ, sin doesn't die. Sin didn't die, right? Sin is very much alive in the world. Today, don't believe me, just look around, right? Just turn on the news, right? But instead, it is we who are dead to sin. Let me say that again. Sin isn't dead. It is we who are dead to sin because of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. In fact, we have to die to sin daily, right? We're called to take up our cross and to follow Jesus. God doesn't take away the sin nature of believers and said he gives us a new nature, one that is greater, right? And he, he provides salvation from the effects of sin, which is death. Verse 8, And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, he shall live. Now, I know there's a lot of you out there that are probably smarter than I am, Uh, so I'm not saying maybe you wouldn't have gotten this, but I I just think I never would have understood that the bronze serpent on the pole represented Jesus if Jesus hadn't said that to Nicodemus, right? Jesus confirms it out of his own mouth in John chapter 3, right? He He says, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Now, when we think of Jesus, we think of him as the lily of the valley, right, the the rose of Sharon, we think of him as the light of the world, but not a reptile, and certainly not a serpent. Like, if we didn't have this story in the Old Testament, and we read this in any other book outside of the Bible, we'd be outraged, right? Like, what are you doing, right? What are you saying? But here it is, a fiery serpent made of bronze, attached to a pole, and raised up in the wilderness. Now, why a serpent? Because the serpent represents sin. And God wanted the people to remember, I think, and to, to realize their sin. And think about it, what did Jesus become on the cross? Second Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin. He took our sin. Jesus bore our sin. He who knew no sin became sin represented by the serpent. And God says that anyone who simply raises their eyes to look at it will live. And the bite of the serpent will be negated. Churches is a type of our Savior. Deuteronomy 21.23 says for a hanged man is cursed by God. Galatians 3.13 says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. as we think of the cross today, understand this, that the cross of Christ is both terrible and wonderful at the same time. And and I think, honestly, we've lost some of the, the terror of it today, right? We have the jewelry we wear around our neck. It's a Beautiful piece of olive wood, right? But I think we've lost some of the terror of it today. Jesus hung there, cursed of God, so that we might be blessed of God. He was made to be sin, so we might be made right with God. His flesh was condemned there on the cross. Romans 8, uh, verses 1-4 through tell us, so that we might be free from sin and death, that we might walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. As Jesus hung on Calvary's cross, he became the physical representation of sin, and God judged it there forever. He removed its penalty from among us forever. How amazing is the grace of Jesus that he's willing to become the accursed fiery serpent of sin and invite us to look up at that terrible sight of the cross for our healing. There on the cross, he hung in disgrace, he hung in humiliation. I mean, have made he visits to the hospital when a, a patient's embarrassed by how they look, right? Their hair's not fixed. Maybe it's the, the injuries, whatever. They're embarrassed by how they look. My, my hair's not combed yet. Jesus, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He, he despised its shame. And he invites all to, to look up so that he might draw them to himself. Look up at him when you feel the fiery stick of sin. Look up at him and believe he was put there for you. And there is nothing for you to do but to lift up your eyes and see him there. And when you do this in faith, the poison of death is removed from you forever. Now, if the bronze serpent was a type of Christ, then the pole was a type of what? It was a cross. It was a picture of the cross. With that in mind, I want you to go to the Second Kings. If you want to turn there, Second Kings. Chapter 18, to find out what eventually happened to this fiery serpent that Moses made to the land that that God ordained and used to to heal uh, people there on the border of the land of Edom. Second Kings, chapter 18, verse 1, it says, Now it came about in the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, the king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king, and he was 25 years old when he became king. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Abai, the daughter of Zechariah. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. He broke into pieces what? The bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and they called it Nehushta. Ever wonder why no one's found Noah's Ark or the Ark of the Covenant or or Moses' body, right? This is why in 2 Kings, it's been over 600 years from the time that Moses made the serpent until this period in Israel's history, and they've turned the serpent on a pole into an idol, and, and they're burning incense to it, right? And can I point out, this is going to be right before their exile to Babylon. When we talk about the Cross, when we talk about this icon, understand, it has been misused in history. I I know it's been outwardly worshipped, even kissed by the masses, right, as as priests hold it up. But for us today, it's not an idol. It's a symbol of, of victory and no more. The empty cross tells us that our Lord triumphed over sin and death through the cross. And so let's just be very careful, Christians, to remind ourselves that on that implement of torture, Jesus Christ became for a moment the ugliest entity in the universe so that the Father could pour his wrath out on him for the healing of our disease and for the removal of death. By his stripes, we are healed. And understand this today, the greatest healing that we stand in need of is, is not a physical healing, it's a spiritual healing, right? We need the atoning work of Jesus on the cross in order to be reconciled to God himself. So church, let the cross be a reminder of beauty, but also of the horror that took place there for you and for all who would look up at it. keep the object in, in its proper place in your thinking, and then... Worship the one who hung there, because what he did there was he crushed the serpent's head. Satan is forever cast down and ruined, the, the prince of this world is stripped of all of his power and of his claim on you forever, all because of the cross. First John 3, 8 says, The Son of God appeared for this purpose. The serpent in the Old Testament was lifted on a pole, so that all who looked at it lived. All those who were bitten looked at it and lived. If the sting of death was to be overcome, a look at the serpent on a pole was necessary. Jesus says He also must be lifted up like that serpent, so that all who were under the attack of the old serpent, the devil, may look up and live. Can I just say this is why we preach the gospel? This is why we preach the gospel. It's the work of atonement on the cross. It is the only antidote for the poison of sin. It's on the cross that Jesus becomes the great physician, capable of healing all disease and forgiving all sin. with you stand with me? today? came across this poem this week. I don't know who wrote it. It's authors unknown. But it says this, I, on the cross, the High in the heavens he reigns. Here sinners by the old serpent stung. Look and forget your pains. Come then to this physician. His help will freely give. He makes no heart condition. It is only to look and to live. Church, I encourage you never shrink back from the cross. It is the power of our sin, the consequences of our sin again is death both physical and spiritual but the cross is the place of atonement when, where, where we can be made right, right with God and I want to tell you the cross is here for you today if you're feeling the sting of sin in your life look to the cross place your faith in Christ place your faith in what he accomplished there next week we're going to talk about repentance but here's the Cliff Notes version Repentance is this. It's simply turning. It's turning from sin and it's turning to Christ. And today, you can do that right now where you're at. simply saying, God, I've sinned against you. Would you forgive me? Would you remove the sting of sin over? Place my faith in you, Lord Jesus, and what you accomplished on the cross. As we look to the cross, we we do it with faith, right? Saying, God, would you forgive me? Would you cleanse me? Would you make me new? Would you fill me with your Holy Spirit? And just help me to live for you. If you would pray that prayer, even for the first time today, come and just talk to me afterwards. We'd love to help you with the next steps, but I want to encourage you, and if you're feeling the reminds us that through the cross, through an instrument of execution, our Savior lived out his dying love for us, by dying on him for our salvation, our sins carried to the cross by Jesus, they were buried with him in the grave, and his resurrection today assures us of our eternal destiny, if our faith is in him, our eternal destiny is with him, as God's children you to, to join with us in singing this song as a declaration that Jesus be to no whatever's before you today if you look to the cross you can understand that Jesus,